God, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 will be our text this morning. And you'll see the sermon title, Christian Living Equals Radical Righteousness. This is a tall order that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 5, especially when we read it at face value. But before we read the text, I want to invite you to pray with me. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to your word this morning, we know that your word has the power of life because it's living, it's active, and it's sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces to the vision of joint and marrow, or bone and marrow, soul and spirit. And so, Father, our hope and desire this morning is that in coming before you, we submit our very lives to your Holy Spirit's work in us. And we ask, Lord, that you would work in us to renew within us steadfast spirit to refresh not only our bodies and our minds, but our souls as well. And Father, we ask that you would be exalted in this place. And so, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth this morning, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. I pray, Father, that you would anoint our ears to hear my lips to speak, and Father, by your Holy Spirit, you would have freedom to work in our hearts and minds as you so desire, for it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Have you ever felt like you couldn't measure up? Have you ever felt like no matter what your success or, or how hard you worked to complete a task, it was never good enough. Some children feel this way about their parents. They go through life trying to measure up to their parents' expectations, attempting to earn respect from a hard father or a hard mother, longing to hear those words, well done, longing to hear those words, I'm proud of you. Or similarly, in our vocation, maybe we serve under a a difficult boss who always seems to find the smallest mistake with anything that we do. One who seems to point out our error often. Maybe it's because we didn't complete the job as he or she would have completed it. Well, if this is your background, even if it's not, I think we must be careful not to transpose this emotive thinking into our relationship with God. For the Christian life is not an unattainable ethic. Yet I think oftentimes we do approach God in this way. We tend to read the Bible in this way. We make comments like, yeah, but Paul was an apostle. Or, yeah, but those disciples, man, they walked with Jesus. And then we think, I couldn't possibly measure up in character like they did. And in a fleshly sense... Perhaps maybe you're right, but in a much greater sense, this is a wrong view when it comes to God and when it comes to our relation to him. In fact, it's not really about you at all. It's about the power of God at work in you by the Holy Spirit. And so as you read in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, Jesus shares some shocking words. Follow along as I read. Jesus says, 
do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This morning, I want us to see the only way that we can enter the kingdom of heaven is by the Holy Holy Spirit empowering radical, righteous living for believers. And this radical, radical righteous living, it will, uh, it will contrast with the superficial righteous living of the world. And so this morning, let us see that the only way that we can live up to the demands that Christ is speaking in this text is through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In fact, he cites the Pharisees not as a negative illustration. He cites them in a positive sense to show that if anyone could have lived up according to the law, it would have been the scribes and Pharisees, but in their own human flesh in their own power there is no way that even their good deeds could amount to giving them righteousness that would grant them entrance into the kingdom of heaven and so first this morning we see that surpassing righteousness is possible through divine empowerment surpassing righteousness is possible through divine empowerment so we begin at the end in verse 20 Because I think this is important for us to see. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is addressing how we define our relationship with God. He's defessing, he's, he's, um, he's addressing how do we define, how we define our spirituality, And his words in verse 20 certainly caused the disciples and all that heard him to gasp in shock when he spoke them. But what did he mean by saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So it might surprise us to learn that Jesus isn't speaking negatively about the scribes and the Pharisees. He wasn't implying that the scribes and Pharisees were wicked lawbreakers who set a very low standard for conduct. In fact, the scribes and the Pharisees were recognized as those who scrupulously followed the Old Testament law and even added to the commands of the law to fence the Torah, so to speak, to protect them from breaking God's law. They counted in all 248 commandments in the Old Testament to follow, and 365 prohibitions to be strictly followed. Can you imagine keeping up with that on a daily basis? Scribes were highly trained experts for interpreting and applying the law to daily life. They normally began their training as children, and they studied until the time of age 40 when they would become formally ordained into the scribal vocation. Similarly, the Pharisees were committed to meticulous observance of the law. So, 
if you're a Jew in the first century, if you're a disciple, and you're hearing Jesus teach this, the question that's undoubtedly floating around in your mind, in the disciples' mind, even in our minds as we read Jesus' words, is how in the world can this be? How can our behavior and character surpass that of the most outwardly religious people? To that we must understand the surpassing righteousness, the exceeding righteousness Jesus is calling for isn't determined by one's actions, but first by the attitude of one's heart. You see, Jesus is teaching here that it's, it's not about the geography of one's feet that makes one righteous. It's about the geography, ge- geography first of one's heart before God. And so the scribes and the Pharisees had become masters at guarding their steps. But their religious exercise wasn't for God's glory. It was for their own glory. It was a superficial righteousness. Their hearts were far from God. Their righteousness was merely external. It was all for show. Their focus was on the purity of their actions, not the purity of their heart. And so their deep hypocrisy drew attention to self rather than God. You see, believer, you need to recognize and realize that when we come to church, it's not about putting on a mask, right? It's not about how righteous or religious we look. Their objective, the scribes and Pharisees' objective, was to be noticed by men for their piety, for their righteousness, But Jesus says they had their reward in full there. And what Jesus is getting at is there's a... You see, Jesus did not disagree with the Pharisees and the scribes about the authority of the law. What he disagreed with them on was the interpretation of the law. And what Jesus is doing in chapter 5 from verses 21 through 48, as we'll see in the next few weeks, is he's giving us a right understanding of what it means to be righteous before God. It's not about just carrying out the letter of the law. It's about living in a a heartfelt obedience. It's about pursuing God with all that we have, like like uh, like the Beatitudes speak about. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that the kingdom of heaven is all about the rule and the reign of God in one's heart. John Stott in his commentary calls this surpassing righteousness deep obedience. It's the demand for internal obedience. You see, the demand for external righteousness seeks for more and more obedience. But Jesus seeks for deeper and deeper obedience. So it's not about placing our lives against the lives of a scribe or Pharisee or a person that we might consider more righteous than us and saying, okay, I scored a 240 on the exam and he scored or she scored a 230. Therefore, I'm more righteous. No. Jesus is saying when we come before God, the kingdom of heaven is about the rule and the reign of God in our hearts. This deep obedience is a righteousness of the heart And it's only possible through divine empowerment of the Holy Spirit who regenerates the believer and indwells the believer. And so get what Jesus is saying. 
He's saying it is humanly impossible to attain this righteousness. You cannot do it by keeping the law. You cannot do it by doing good works. You cannot be righteous enough because this righteousness only comes by new birth. And no one enters the kingdom of heaven without being born again. You know, I think many Christians, they view their relationship with God as a series of transactions. Transactions to earn God's favor. But instead, Jesus is calling us to a life of purity that begins with deep obedience. And it leads to a transformed life, within, which then leads to transformed actions. And this is what Jesus means when he says in Matthew 6.33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, he's saying, get the heart right, and the actions will follow. If not, Christian, you'll be incredibly miserable and empty. So there are two implications for this surpassing righteousness that Jesus is calling his disciples, his followers to. And the first one is to realize that it's Holy Spirit enabled. And the second is it's, it is the growth of our internal character in God's ways that then leads us to transformation and living this surpassing righteousness through divine empowerment. And it transforms our external conduct. Right, So the heart is set upon Christ, and then our actions are impacted because our heart has been changed. So surpassing righteousness is only possible through divine empowerment. But secondly, this morning, God's people look to God's word for hope. And I want you to see this in verses 17 and 18. There there really are three theological issues that we encounter in verses 17 and 18. I'm sorry to... To go, uh, to go um, technical on you, but here, the first one we look at in verses 17 and 18 is, what does Jesus mean by the phrase, the law and are, the law are the prophets? What does Jesus mean by the phrase, law or the prophets? Secondly, how does Jesus define the relation between Old Testament and New Testament? How does Jesus define the relation between the Old Testament and the New Testament? And then thirdly, what does it mean that Jesus fulfills the law? What does it mean that Jesus fulfills the law? Well, the first question is easily answered. What does Jesus mean by the phrase law of the prophets? Jesus means the entirety of the Old Testament when he speaks of the law or the prophets. He's speaking of the entire canon of the Old Testament here. But the second and third answers work in tandem, kind of like two axles on which the revelation of God's word rests. Jesus demonstrates a high view of scriptural authority. And in verse 17, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In fact, he demonstrates throughout his earthly ministry why the whole of God's word is central to the heart and the mind set on the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. He demonstrates throughout his earthly ministry, go back and read through the Gospels and see how Jesus demonstrates throughout his earthly ministry that it's imperative for the heart and the mind to be set upon the truth of God's word. 
He models it in chapter 4 when Satan comes in the wilderness to tempt Jesus. Satan says, turn, the, turn this stone into bread. And Jesus replies from Deuteronomy, from the law, right? Saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Secondly, in verse 7 of chapter 4 in Matthew, he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then thirdly, he quotes from Deuteronomy again, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Now, Jesus is doing two things when he responds with the truth of God's word. First, he's refuting error with the truth of God's word as Satan was trying to twist scripture. He's refuting error. But secondly, he recites the truth of God's word in the midst of temptation so that his mind is set upon the truth of God's word. So he remembers the truth of God's word so that he's not deceived. So Jesus demonstrates a high view of scriptural authority in his life. Similarly, church, we ought to demonstrate a high view of scriptural authority in our life. In verse 17, Jesus adamantly upholds the law, and he claims to be the fulfillment of it. He's saying that it all points to him, and it all culminates in him. Look, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. In other words, the entire Old Testament law the prophets, the writings, all of it pointed forward to Jesus' incarnational ministry. His life and ministry brings sure and certain promises of God's word in full measure. Jesus is the revelation of God in the world. He supplies the final revelation of God's word and God's will Bishop Ryle, J.C. Ryle, summed it up like this. He said, the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. So how, how does Christ fulfill the Old Testament? Well, he fulfills it in that all of it points to him. And all of it finds its fullest and most complete meaning in Christ. He fulfills Old Testament messianic prophecy of his birth, of his death. Read the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, of his resurrection, of his ascension, of, of, of redemption for man. He fulfills the sacrificial, sacrificial system of the Old Testament law where God's people would come before him and make sacrifices in order to have forgiveness of sins. The whole sacrificial system was fulfilled in Christ on Calvary. That's the reason why one scholar named Mounts says of Leviticus, he says, Leviticus still today teaches us the holiness of God, the horribleness of sin, and the mercy of God in allowing a substitute. Jesus became the substitutionary atonement for our sin. And the book of Leviticus, as boring as you may think it is, is very instructive for the believer's life. I won't forget when we were, I'll never forget this, while we were in Uganda um, at Bugiri, Pastor George found out that I was a hunter and that I had cleaned and I had skinned an animal before that I had shot. Um, and so Pastor George says, he gives me a nickname for the hunter and he says, okay, Nick, you're going you're gonna to kill and clean the goat that we're going to eat for, for our celebration. And so now this is just a way of life in Uganda. Uh, it's It's formed a table, right, or uh, formed a plate, and so um, I said, okay, not knowing what to expect, I get there, 
uh, and all of a sudden it hits me. Um, I've never taken the life of an animal that I haven't shot to eat. And when I put my hands on this animal, it became more real for me that the only way to take the life of this animal is to cut its throat. And so while it may seem graphic, here's the reality that believers fa- or that, that the nation of Israel faced whenever they would come and bring a sin offering before the Lord. They would have to cut the throat of the animal so that blood would be shed for the forgiveness and the remission of sin. And here's what Leviticus teaches us. It teaches us that God has provided a substitute, a once and for all sacrifice, so that no longer do we have to go and shed the blood of an, of a, of an animal We have the spotless Lamb of God who shed His blood, that which we sang about this morning. Jesus, all I trust is in your blood. It is through the blood of Christ that we have the forgiveness of our sins and are brought into the presence of holy God. And so Jesus, in one act on Calvary, fulfilled the Levitical law of the Old Testament. The sacrificial law. He, he fulfilled the food laws of clean and unclean. No, no longer are we, we worried about what we eat or, or what we wear as making us clean or unclean before God. Now it's what? It's about the, the heart. And so the Old Testament revelation of God's character and activity is also fulfilled in Christ. John 1.18. Jesus said, I came to explain the Father to you. He reveals. It's the word exegete. In the Greek it means to exegete, to explain. He has revealed the Father to you. His creation. So in culminating with Christ, some of the laws cease. Not because they're abrogated or abolished, but because they're ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And so what we need to recognize is that the authority of God's word is from Old Testament to New Testament. All of it. The same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament who came incarnationally in the person and work of Jesus Christ for the redemption of our sins, for the fulfillment of the promise of God's word. And Jesus doubles, doubles down on this in verse 18. Many of you are wondering why those two Hebrew words are there on your outline, and I'm about to explain it. But in, Jesus, in verse 18, Jesus clarifies the meticulous nature of God's word and God's promise. He says, every detail is true. Every detail is theolo- theologically significant for the believer. He's not allowing for some of it to be true and some of it to be false. In verse 18, he says, for truly... Truly, right, I say to you, in other words, get this, this is big, flashing neon sign. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. Some of your translations read, not a jot or a tittle. Some read, not the smallest Hebrew letter or not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will pass from the law until it it is all accomplished. Now, let me attempt to demonstrate, This this is pretty Significant. So let me attempt to demonstrate with the Hebrew language uh, what might not be readily evident. If you look on your sheet or if you look on the screen, you'll see two words. The one on my right, which is on your right, yeah. The one on our right is the word ahad. It means one. The last letter in that word, ahad, all right, so Hebrew is read from right to left. Okay, right to left. So you've got Aleph, Hate, 
dollar. Okay, so the last letter in that first word, ahad, it's a dollar. It's a D. All right, now look on your outline. You see that little box around that little jot off the back of the dollar? You see that box on your outline? Yes, no, yes. Okay, so this is, this is the jot, all right? This is the stroke of the pen. That's what this is. Now, this word ahar means another. And the last letter on the word ahar is a resh. Notice the, the word is very similar. They look exactly the same, except the last letter in each word. The resh doesn't have that jot on the end of it, does it? It's missing. And this is the least stroke of a pen. Now, this word ahar means another. Ahad, one. Ahar, another. Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord our God is one. He is ahad. He is not ahar, another. He is one. And Jesus is saying, the smallest stroke of a pen, the smallest letter of the alphabet is so significant, it's so important that it will not pass away until the end comes. This is how important Jesus says God's word is. It's that important for us. God's law is true and it's right even to the most minute or the minutest detail of his word. It will absolutely and entirely be fulfilled. And Jesus, Jesus comes in his incarnational ministry and through the cross becomes the ultimate fulfillment of the law. Holy God poured out his wrath on the sinless Christ for the sin of man who has broken his law. See, the law condemns sin and pronounces death as the penalty. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christ says in verse 17, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. See, the justice of God toward the sin of man was enacted that day on the cross. So through dying on the cross and bearing the sin of humanity... Christ fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy of the law. The unblemished, spotless lamb became the offering and became the scapegoat, whereby our sin was atoned for, transferred upon him, and he was driven outside the walls of Jerusalem so that by his blood we are purchased, and by faith we are called the sons of God. So God's law was fulfilled in Christ, all of it. This is why God's people look to God's word for hope. This is why we can look to God's word for hope. For in it, we have the promises of God fulfilled. And those which have not yet come to pass will come to pass before the passing away of the age. This is why God's word has authority here and now. So let me ask you, church, is this your view of God's word? Do you view Scripture with the same authority as Jesus? Is this how we view Scripture? Do, do, do we treasure Scripture with the same tenacity as Christ? Do we live and walk in the hopeful promise of God's Word? 
that he has provided a way for our redemption? That the penalty for sin has been satisfied in Christ so that you don't experience death and eternal condemnation, but by Christ you can be made righteous before God and you can walk with God and you can live in this life of surpassing righteousness? Thirdly this morning and finally, God's people live by God's word for greatness. That may seem a little bit odd to you, but verse 19 says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments teaches others to do this and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. As I thought about this contrast between the greatest and the least, <clears throat> I, I thought when it comes to most everything in life, we strive to be the best that we can be, right? I remember when the army's slogan was, be all that you can be in the army. I mean, who wants to be the least paid employee in the plant? Raise your hand. Right? Who wants to be the least liked child or kid on the playground or in school? Who wants to be the least talented player on the team or the least talented player in the band? Who wants to be the least productive employee for the company? So often, this is how we treat our relationship with God. We grow content with where we are, and we become complacent in our version of prosperous Christianity. Why do we so legalistically try to define sin? We say, up to this point, it's okay, but past this point, it's sin. We want to identify the line between what's okay and what's sinful behavior so we can edge up as closely as possible to it, right, without crossing it. That's what we do. That's what you do. That's what I do. That's what we do. But in reality, whether in our vocation, the end of our careers, or in our hobbies, we don't settle for the least, do we? It's amazing to me, though, how when it comes to heaven, we settle. We have this minimalistic mindset. But listen, if we, if we worked as hard toward righteousness as we do towards wealth, Right? Or if we hungered and thirsted for righteousness as much as we do for retirement. Or if we, if we longed for God's enjoyment like we seek to long to enjoy our hobbies. I wonder how our relationship with Christ might then change. I wonder how effective believers might be in imaging Christ to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to those who are under our influence. I wonder how effective our churches might be in reaching their communities. You see, greatness, greatness is not a matter of recognition by men. Greatness is a matter of obedience before God. And so Jesus confronts our minimalist mentality when he speaks about the least in the kingdom of heaven and the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And I want to challenge you, if your attitude toward the kingdom of heaven is a, a minimalist mentality, stop thinking in worldly, fleshly terms about God's kingdom and be gripped by Jesus' call of radical righteousness. You see, this really calls us to what Jesus spoke in the Beatitudes of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. 
Learning and keeping the precepts of God as recorded in all of Scripture will make a difference in our eternal reward. And so following Christ isn't simply a matter of some subjective inner impulse. It it involves knowing what he desires. And we need to be in touch with the teaching of all of God's word so that we might know what God desires, so that we might walk righteously. And we need the Holy Spirit as our counselor, our comforter, our guide. You see, Jesus' words have set us up for a supremely radical call. True belief necessitates radical personal righteousness. If we're hungering and thirsting after God, then we will know, as John says in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You see, pharisaical righteousness was burdensome. It was external. Jesus is explaining the human impossibility of entering the kingdom of heaven based on our merit. We need God's grace. Salvation apart from God's grace is impossible. This is why we must be poor in spirit, as Beatitudes say. You see, kingdom living exudes surpassing righteousness. Surpassing righteousness, is it's a relationship of love and obedience to God which prompts an internal transforming work by the Holy Spirit. So I want to close by asking us a few questions to consider. Are you responsible for relaxing the commandments of the Lord? Seeing just how far you can get and how close you can get to the edge of the line. Right? We're like, We're like these spectators standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and we're inching up just close as we can without falling over. What if we turned that effort into pursuing the righteousness of God, into hungering and thirsting for his righteousness? Do I teach others to relax the commandments of the Lord? Do I seek to know and to live out the commandment of the Lord from from the purity of my heart? Believer, are you trying this morning to earn God's favor, thinking to be good enough? Are you trying, friend, to earn God's favor, thinking you can be good enough? I want to encourage you to stop trying to earn God's favor and surrender to Christ who has paid the debt and who makes us righteous before the Lord. Do you look to God's word with hope? Are you trusting in the promises of God's word like Christ encourages us to through this text, like he demonstrates? Can you say this in your own life? I pray that you can. This morning, I want to challenge you to respond to the Lord Jesus in the way that he's leading you. Righteousness needs to be the pursuit of all believers. Christian living equals radical righteousness. Listen, this isn't some meritorious work. This is about trusting in Christ and living in the reality of his kingdom, kingdom reality. Pray with me. Father, as we consider your word this morning and consider our lives before your word, it's my prayer that you would strengthen us and encourage us, draw our hearts to you, O Lord, so that we might seek to walk in your ways, 
so that our hearts would be susceptible and sensitive to your Holy Spirit's leading and prompting in our lives. And Father, we pray that you would empower us for this radical righteousness, that which we cannot earn on our own, but comes from you. Would you empower us, Lord, to live righteously so that we might engage a lost world for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning?